It's time to call our shots on today's episode. We have our last Adam Gase Award nominations. We then give you our conference championship recaps, and we announce the Pro Bowl roster. And I know the Pro Bowl is basically a promulgated flag football game, but we cover it a little bit, see which conference got it right, which conference got it wrong. We then pass it over to some NHL coverage where Puck Me, we have some funny moments to get into. We give our weekly rewind, a standings update, league leaders and stats. So buckle up. It's going to be a great one. I just want to thank the great CMS listeners for all the recent support and love we've received on our latest episodes. We're going to continue pumping content out there and making a name for ourselves in sports media. But as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Caller Shots. And if you would like to support our show, our link is patreon.com slash calling my shots. Let's get into it. Making their way to the ring. The reigning, defending, podcast champs. Calling my shots. What's going on, CMS listeners? We have an action-packed show for you. We only have one or two more episodes of football left to talk about, and then we're going to start incorporating some more baseball coverage into the show because it's been a crazy offseason so far, so we're dying to talk about it. Zach, what's going on? What do you think about the sports world this weekend? You know, we had some good football games. We had a little hockey. We had a little bit of everything going on, and it was a good weekend. It was a good weekend. What about you? Well, the Penguins swept the Rangers, so, you know, I definitely can't complain about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little later. So I'm sure uh, uh, Zach's really happy about it. You can tell just by he didn't even dare put on his Kreider jersey because Kreider was basically a no-show during that series. I don't know about that, but uh, I do know that they didn't play well last time they put the sweater on, so we're going to ride the hot streak and we're going to take it off, let them see how they do. A little bit of sad news to report. You know, last week on the program, we talked about Don Sutton passing away. Well, Dalton, we lost another baseball legend this week. Hammerin' Hank Aaron passed away, born in 1934 and died in 2021. That's a pretty darn good run. Mr. Hank had the career home runs record before Barry Bonds broke it with or without steroids, the help, uh, whatever you want to look at it. But Cameron Hank still holds the record for most RBIs and most total bases, given the rich baseball history. It's sad that we lost Cameron Hank. And I can't sit here and tell you that I ever got the chance to see him play. But for you to hit 755 home runs in your career and never hit more than 45 home runs, that's pretty impressive. Absolutely. And, uh, so Cameron Hank will forever be remembered and uh, rest in peace, buddy. Yeah. Well, Zach and I at some point are going to release probably a top 10 power hitters or hitters, something along those lines in Major League Baseball history. And you have to assume that he's going to be on the list. This guy, you can't argue with his track record. Some people still consider him to be the greatest hitter of all time. I don't know if I'd go that far, but he's certainly in the conversation. And he definitely is a baseball legend, and it's it's tragic that 
You know, Major League Baseball's lost two marquee players. His stats alone speak for themselves. But also, if you look at the guy, he played for the Braves um, in Milwaukee, and then they moved to Atlanta, and he played for uh, the Braves in the mid-60s up to uh, the mid-70s. And, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the South at that time. But Mr. Aaron was a hell of a baseball player and a hell of a right fielder. You want to talk about the war wins above replacement, which we have talked about on this show. Best that, it was best that in baseball. You want to take a you want to take a guess of uh, what his war was? Career? Yeah, probably between one fifty and two hundred. Well, it's one forty three, which ranks oh, him I was, seventh I, all I time. Close. I was close for the top of my head. Seventh all time, only behind George Herman Ruth. Walter Big Train Johnson, Cy Young, Barry Bonds, the Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays, the Georgia Peach, Ty Cobb, and then Hammer and Hank. So some pretty good names on that list. Top of your head, Zach, is Hank in your top 10 baseball players of all time? Absolutely. Yeah. Not a question. Not even. That does not require any thought. Hammer and Hank's up there. What about you? Yeah, he's easily in the top 10. You can't argue with his track record overall. The guy was a walking legend and the model of consistency. So, just to be honest. Obviously, you could make the argument for for Babe Ruth, but I, can you think of a of a better right fielder? I mean, you got you know guys like Al Kaline, Frank Robinson, guys like that, Roberto Clemente. But I don't think you can put anybody maybe besides George Herman Ruth above Hank Aaron in right field. Yeah, and then you have the whole baseball era argument, and then you could say, well, Ruth's numbers are inflated. So you could certainly make the argument that Hank Aaron is the best right fielder of all time well honestly that was a very good question and i would love to hear our calling my shots audience thoughts on that but that was also a trick question to see because i knew you were just going to be like roberto clemente was the greatest right fielder of all time (laughs) no i mean i am a little bit partial towards my teams but i'm a baseball purist so i respect the great baseball purist my goodness also by the way just want to throw this out there chris Kreider, who you just drug his name through the mud just scored his second goal of the year against the buffalo sabers so uh yeah, it's, it's the sabers what happened against the penguins you know the rangers were showing such great promise and then they let the pens come back twice games that they probably should have won your boys played a- your boys just irking i don't know Rangers played a really good game on the uh, second game of that series. Only gave up four shots in the third period. Only 19 shots on the whole game for the Penguins. I thought the Rangers played very well. You got to stock the puck if you're the goalie. So it's hard to put that on the team. I'm putting that loss on Shesterkin, but we'll get into that a little later, a little later. So, you know, we always love to start the show off with our AGA. A little different this week. Obviously, the football season is dwindling down. So the candidates get smaller and smaller, but I've got a pretty good feeling that there is a consensus AGA this week. Dalton, I've got Matt LaFleur. This is the last AGA award, sadly. Until next season, Zach and I are going to have to retire this because obviously the football season is near the end. So enjoy it. Take it in. And we have probably the most worthy candidate of the season so far. Bad, bad, bad. Again, as I said, Matt LaFleur, the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. So, Dalton, let me give you a little scenario. So, you're in the NFC Championship game. You're down by eight with two minutes to go on your eight-yard line. Fourth and goal. Sketchy situation. Yeah, I understand. Oh, by the way, the guy on the other sideline has six Super Bowl wins in Tom Brady. Pretty much the best offense in the NFC right now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the way they're clicking 
Oh, also, you've got Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback. What are you going to do? Are you going to kick the field goal or are you going to go for it? Well, Matt LaFleur. <laughs> you're going to trust the process, Zach. You're going to trust the process. No. Matt LaFleur kicks the field goal. I thought about this. I, I sat down and was really thinking about this. And every situation that I saw and thought of, it just makes no sense. Even if you do not get it, Dalton, even if you don't get it, you still give Tom Brady the ball. You still got all your timeouts, and Tom Brady gets the ball on the eight-yard line or wherever the ball ends up. So Tom Brady's pinned back in his own territory. You got a good chance. Yeah, no matter what, you have to get a stop. Regardless also, of what happens, you have to get a stop. Also, they kick the field goal. Whoopee. Now it's a five-point game. You still got to have a touchdown to win the game or to tie, or to even have any chance of the game. It made no sense. I just had no idea what he was doing. You've got to have some stones in that situation. And again, you've got Aaron Rodgers. I feel pretty good about that. And then number two, Tom Brady's getting the ball on the other side of it. You got to at least give your guys a chance to play because basically this pretty much said that you trust your defense to force a three and out against Tom Brady more than you trust Aaron Rodgers to get a touchdown, which sounds crazy. They didn't have the 85 Bears defense over there. We know they played well against um, the Saints and the Rams, but let's be real here. They were not going to get this ball back. When Tom Brady got it from the 25, had all the time in the world, it just didn't matter. And I just have no reason to believe that Matt LaFleur made the right decision. And I know I went on a little bit of a rant there. I know it went a little off, but it's just crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. You've got to give your guys a chance to win the game. He did a hell of a job this year. He's done great since he replaced McCarthy, but my goodness, that was awful. Yeah, and another critical part of that, Zach, is there was only two minutes and five seconds left in the game. What do you really think is going to happen? Do you really think that with the dwindling time left in the game that you're going to have a shot to get the ball back and score? It's just such a mind-blowing decision, and. I don't know if he was nervous or what was going on, but the other thing is, too, I also feel like his game plan was terrible going into it. I really feel like they should have ran the ball more, and that's not being talked about enough. I know you have Aaron Rodgers, who's an all-world quarterback, but you also have Aaron Jones, who's been one of the most pivotal pieces of your offense all year long, and they just did not run the ball at all. They had very few attempts, and they just abandoned that early, and Overall, his entire game plan, his decision at the end of the game, he deserves the AGA award this week, and there's really not much else to it. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said with your statement there. I mean, the guy is obviously a good coach. In his two years, he has been in Green Bay. He obviously got a very talented roster when when he came in there, but he is 26-6. and six. He's gone 13-3 and three twice. And both times has made it to the NFC Championship game and lost both times. I mean, the guy knows what he's doing in the regular season. He's a very good coach. But come on. You've got one could argue the greatest quarterback in history back there, and you're going to take the ball out of his hands. I just don't see it. Yeah, very questionable. And it could be that he's young, but still, at the end of the day, that's how you create your legacy. And if you fail to make the right calls in big games, you're not going to last too long, and a fan base is going to start calling for your head. Even with all the regular season success that you have, you just can't make those types of mistakes, especially in the social media era that we live in, where every wrong decision is just exemplified by every beat writer, any sports fan out there. Everyone talks about it, and that's all that's been talked about for the last three or four days. 
For sure. And let's just think here. If they would have gone for it and missed it and didn't get it, you know, sucks. I hate it for the Packers, but oh well, it would have just been, nobody would have ever said a word. Now, he's going to be a meme until they win that NFC Championship game. I mean, seriously. I mean, this is terrible. Yeah, you're not wrong. Tell me, I mean, seriously, if they would have not gotten an incomplete pass or stopped short or whatever, they'd have been like, well, they tried. But now he didn't even try. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So we've gone pretty hard on one head coach that was, I guess, now like you and me sitting at home. So we got a little bit of head coaching news here in the NFL. The Eagles have went out and hired a head coach in Nick Sarani. What do you think about that, Dalton? I know you love your Pennsylvania brethren and cheered the Eagles on very hard. Fly, Eagles, fly. So what's your thought? The city of, first of all, the city of brotherly love can kiss my ass. I can't stand the Eagles. I can't stand the Flyers. I don't like any Philly sports team. But this decision overall, the more I read into it, the more I understand it. I actually do think this is a decent hire because Nick Sirianni has had a lot of success serving under Frank Reich as the offensive coordinator for Indianapolis. What he was able to accomplish with Phillip Rivers this year in his elder years has been impressive, and he has a very good resume. He's slowly risen his way up the ladder. Maybe this is the move that helps reinvigorate Carson Wentz or makes him a somewhat serviceable quarterback. My thing with the Eagles is I don't know why the owner is not going after Howie Roseman. To me, he's the big fish that needs to be fried is the general manager. But that's a whole different tangent. And even Doug Peterson, the guy still won a Super Bowl. I think more of their problems has to do with Roseman. But as far as a coaching hire, I can see why they made this move. We know that the NFL has had a shift towards young offensive minds. So it seems to be what everyone is doing and everyone is having success with. So on paper, it's a good hire. Yeah, you kind of touched on it. He's a good offensive guru and he's a young guy, kind of like you said, kind of the way the NFL is trending right now. Um, He's only 39 years old. He was with the Chiefs from 09 to 2012, the Chargers from 13 to 17 as uh, position coaches. And then he was the offensive coordinator, like you said, in Indianapolis between 2018 and 2020. Interesting hire. The the one thing that you kind of made me think about there that's interesting about this is he brought Philip Rivers after Philip Rivers has been in San Diego forever. Brings him in first year, has a lot of success. Philip Rivers puts up a lot of yards. They obviously got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs by the uh, Buffalo Bills, but they had a lot of success in the first year. And that is not easy for a quarterback who knows one system forever to come in there and all of a sudden change everything, new system, new calls, new plays, everything. That is very impressive. I don't mean to demean them, but it says that the system is good and it's simple. And sometimes that's not the worst thing in the world. So Philadelphia needs a culture change. You win the Super Bowl and then your coach gets fired in two and a half, three years. Something's wrong. And um, I think you know, it has more to do with Roseman. But. Uh, I agree. I agree. I think the ownership, the general manager and the coach were not on anywhere near the same page. This will be interesting. Frank Reich said he was uh, brilliant and one of the best offensive coordinators he's ever had. And But I don't have, per se, his que- uh, a question about his offensive X's and O's. It, it's more along the lines of the culture. Philadelphia is not known for being patient, so he's got to win immediately. Philadelphia fans are not uh, known for being passive, and they're going to let him know right away if they don't do well. And so he's going to need to win quick. And thank goodness for him, he happens to play in a very bad division. So we'll see. It'll be interesting. I 
I don't know. I'm not in love with it, but I think it, it could be a good hire. Yeah. On paper, it's a good hire, but we'll see if they can get over the issues with the general manager. I do think Sirianni did a great job grooming Jonathan Taylor. I was very critical of him at first, being like, you drafted Taylor in the second round, but you're not featuring him as the, you know, the guy, the workhorse. And then they were kind of running with a three-headed monster with Wilkins, Naheem Hines, and Taylor for a little while. But overall, that proved to be a good decision because as the season went along, he allowed Jonathan Taylor to touch the ball a lot more. And then we saw Taylor go on a huge run. You see what I did there, Zach? <laughs> towards, towards the end of the season and put up a ton of rushing yards. So we'll see. We'll just see if he's ready for the, the spotlight. That's all right. So next coach that we have, Zach and I failed to talk about this one last week when we were running through this, but the Falcons hire Arthur Smith. So for Arthur Smith, goes from being the AGA award winner to landing a head coaching job. Good for him. Maybe he doesn't listen to calling my shots. He probably should, but the guy gets a head coaching job. So what do we know, Zach? This is kind of funny. You know, I harped on him a few weeks ago for my AGA award and gave it to him. And you accused me of having something against the volunteer state in Tennessee. But again, another 38-year-old offensive guru. I feel a little bit better about this one. Uh, He did a good job coaching up Tannehill in the last few years and balancing that offense with, obviously, you got the King Derrick Henry back there and you get some good receivers in there. Uh, He was with Tennessee for... uh, nine or 10 years. He came there in 2011. He came from actually Ole Miss where he was an, an intern there, a defensive intern. But I'm going to give you a little uh, little conspiracy theorist here. To be partial towards him then. Maybe so, but I'm going to give you a little conspiracy theorist here. Do you know who his dad is? Arthur no. Smith's dad is uh, Frederick W. Smith, who is the founder and the CEO of FedEx. So I think Arthur Smith's oh. doing fine. Yeah, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was going to be fine regardless of whether he got a football coaching job or not. But having your dad have a lot of money and a lot of pull is going to help. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there I read that said that the only reason he's actually got a job at all is because of who his dad is. So kind of funny, kind of interesting. But I did uh, not know that. Did not know that. So his dad is absolutely loaded. Good for him. You know, I hope he does well. Again, we talked about culture change with Sirianni and the Eagles. I think the Falcons need a culture change. That defense is is historically bad at holding leads. Matt Ryan is kind of getting getting old back there. You still got Julio Jones, who plenty of weapons, plenty, plenty of, weapons. of weapons. But to keep this core together, I think is a mistake because I don't think I think they're going down. They haven't hit bottom yet, but. When they do hit bottom, if they don't blow it up, it's going to be a lot harder for them to trend back up. So we'll see. I think he's a good offensive mind, but time will tell. Hmm. I think the real shame here, though, is that Eric Bieniemy still didn't land a job. That's the surprising part to me. Maybe he's waiting for the Chiefs job or teams just aren't willing to take a chance on him. That one, I'm still baffled by it. And how he does not have a head coaching job is beyond me. If it's not you know, his own decision to not be an NFL head coach, then I really think the league is overlooking one of the best offensive minds in the game right now. I agree. I, I don't know how Nick Sirianni got a head coaching job and Eric Bieniemy didn't. And I, I, I don't know. Take it for what you will. I'm not saying anything between the lines, but come on. Something's not right there. Eric Bieniemy deserves a head coaching job. Unless he's not taking it, which I don't know. I haven't done enough research on it. Unless he's getting offered the job and it's just... 
wanting to stay with Mahomes to try to win more Super Bowls. But from what he's taken interviews, so clearly he's interested in becoming a head coach. I don't Maybe know. so. Maybe so. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, something's up. Something's not right, and he deserves a shot. Yeah. So, Zach, who is going to win the Matthew Stafford sweepstakes? And what do you think Stafford's value is at this point in his career? Should a team take a shot on him? Do you still think he's a good franchise quarterback? Where are you at with the whole Stafford deal? Well, I'm not necessarily going to sit here and tell you who I think he's going to go to, but I can tell you who's going to make the most sense. He's 32 years old. He's still got a cannon of an arm. He's never had any help in Detroit as far as the offensive line went. He obviously had Megatron Calvin Johnson over there and some decent other weapons, but the guy can still sling it. To me, there is one destination that makes the most sense. Okay. Washington. Washington has an elite front seven defensively. They have a good secondary. Their defense is borderline elite. They are really good. They've got a pretty okay offensive line. They're fine. They're serviceable. they got some weapons. They need more weapons on the outside. But, again, Alex Smith, he's 37 years old, man. He's not the future. I think that they, if they got Matthew Stafford, they could legitimately be a threat in the NFC. I mean, if they had a service quarterback this year with that defense, they could have gone ten and six. Matthew Stafford could very well go twelve and four. Very you're not, not sold on you're not sold on the Heineke train. You know, I, no, I, he had a fantastic game against the Buccaneers, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to see more than one game before I jump on the Heineke train. Washington makes the most sense. Denver is another team who could be really good. Drew Locke's kind of, eh, I still don't know about him. Yeah, he's above. I think he's above. De- defense is always going to be good. The Saints make a decent option, but the Saints are $99 million over the cap. And I'm not exaggerating there. They are $99 million over the cap. So that's not happening. I could also see him wearing black and gold up in Pittsburgh next year if somebody retired or magically went away. But I would love it. I would love if you got Matthew Stafford. With the, right coach, with the right coaching staff in place, Stafford, I think, is a great and underrated quarterback. It's hard to place any of the Lions' falters on his shoulders because, like you said, there really hasn't been too many great coaches up there in Detroit, and he really hasn't had too many good systems to work with. He needs to get in with the right offensive mind, like a guy like Sean McVay, something like that, where we see what McVay's been able to do with Jared Goff. Matthew Stafford is a more talented quarterback than Jared Goff. So if he were to land in the right system, Stafford could help bring a team back to the playoffs and have a lot of success still. You say talent. Ta- that's Talent is not the right word because, yes, Matthew Stafford is way more talented than Jared Goff. He's got a laser of an arm. Um, he's probably just as mobile. Decision-making, Goff is probably better. Because let's be honest here, as we have both stated previously, the Lions have never had anything to work with. Matthew Stafford has either won them games or has he's had to do everything himself. So he's literally got to sling it. So this kind of reminds me a little bit of when Brett Favre went to the Vikings in 2010. When he had Adrian Peterson back there, he did not have to be Superman for them to win. That's what I would love to see Matthew Stafford go to Washington and let that defense win him games or let Gibson run that rock. Or even Pittsburgh, man, it'd be cool. There's weapons there. He needs stability with a coaching staff. He needs offensive weapons, and he needs a good offensive line. Obviously, that's a wish list for every quarterback, but those are three things that Matthew Stafford never has had in Detroit. This is his chance. He could go to, I swear, he could go to Washington and they could 
be number two seed next year in the a- in the NFC. I agree with you with the Washington pick. I think that would make the most sense, and it would instantly make Washington a contender, especially with their defense. They still have some good weapons to work with, with Terry McLaurin, Logan Thomas, and those guys. So, yeah, Washington could work. That would be a great fit for him overall. And if he did go to the Steelers, I'd be happy about it. Another one that I thought about was Jacksonville, but we know Jacksonville has the number one pick, so I just don't know that unless they decide to trade the number one pick and take a flyer on Stafford, get something back for the number one overall pick, which is going to be very valuable in this draft with the quarterbacks that we have coming out. That was another scenario I was thinking about. But Another one I was looking at was obviously Phillip Rivers has gone from the Colts, so he could be an option there at Indy. New England has a lot of cap space. But the other big one that was really looking at was um, San Francisco. You know, if Jimmy Garoppolo, they don't feel he's going to be the way. But really and truly, Chicago would have been my other thing to look at because Foles is getting older. And I think he would be an upgrade. Yeah, he would be an upgrade over Trubisky easily. Hmm. It's going to be an interesting offseason. We'll see. I'm very interested to see where Stafford's going to end up. So let's kick it over to our conference championship recaps. We have our first game. We alluded to this a little bit earlier. Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the Green Bay Packers. Tom Brady leads the Bucs to a 31-26 victory. Now you can say the Packers more or less beat themselves, which is true. Matt LaFleur making some terrible coaching decisions. But at the end of the day, you have to tip your cap to Tom Brady. The Bucs missed the playoffs last year, and Tom Brady has brought them all the way to the Super Bowl. Tampa Bay will be the first team hosting a home Super Bowl game. Maybe they'll be the favorites. Who knows? But this game came down to Green Bay's ineptitude running the football and the fact that they just put it all on Aaron Rodgers' shoulders, which rightfully so, he's their guy. But the Packers really should have ran the ball more, gotten Aaron Jones involved, and their inability to capitalize on Brady's three interceptions. If you can't score after those picks and you go three and out and have to punt the ball back to Tom Brady, there's no way you're going to win that game. Brady's too elite in the playoffs. The guy has now been to 10 Super Bowls in the 20 years of his career, which is absolutely ridiculous. you got to basically play a perfect game to beat him. He's just been around the block so long. And honestly, his arm strength still looks fine. People were talking about that a little bit earlier, but he was – making some darts and a couple of those interceptions that he threw Mike Evans really should have caught the ball so another year another time we see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl is it ever gonna end Zach you know Dalton this kind of makes me mad not that you know not that Tom Brady did this and not that the Buccaneers won everything just because I didn't pick them I knew better than to go against Tom Brady what was I thinking I still think Aaron Rodgers uh, I didn't either I didn't either. Make all the arguments for this and that, but but let's be honest here. The stats don't lie. Uh, the Buccaneers only gave up 67 yards rushing, which uh, is pretty darn good. I mean, you you hold Jones back there to 27 yards rushing, you you've done pretty well. He only got six carries on the ground, which kind of goes back to what you said, Lafleur not running the ball. But I'll also tell you that the Buccaneers had the held the Packers to uh, two or four in the red zone which 
I mean, you look at the difference of the game right there, the five points, there it is. The Buccaneers' defense is very good against the run. They're very opportunistic. They even pick Rodgers off once. I don't know if the moment was too big for the Packers' offense, but they just did not seem in sync. It seemed like Aaron Rodgers had to do everything, and he just didn't really get a lot of help. So kudos to the Buccaneers. They earned the Super Bowl. They were the class of the NFC this year. And, you know, they had the weapons all year. We just kind of wondered if they were going to be able to put everything together. Antonio Brown didn't even play on Sunday, which I'm sure he will play in the Super Bowl, which this is just crazy, man. Three road playoff wins. Three road playoff wins. And beat three really good teams. I mean, they just beat the number one seed here in Green Bay this week. They beat the Saints in New Orleans. Obviously, no Thunderdome with COVID and everything. And then they beat Washington which, as we had talked about, had an elite defense. And it just kind of is what it is. They're doing really good. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be hard for me to pick against them in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Do you think that all the rumors about Aaron Rodgers wanting out of Green Bay is true? It is very possible. Okay, let me rephrase that. It is very possible that he does. I don't think he would refrain from letting that be known to the public if that were the truth. Because let's be honest, he was really mad when they let go of Jordy Nelson a few years ago. He was not happy about that. He's been on record of not being very happy about them drafting a quarterback in the first round. I mean, my goodness, think about what they could have done if they would have got another piece on defense or another weapon in the first round this year. I think that they realized they messed up. So we'll see. He very well could want out. But again, as I said last week, I just wish we could have seen what he could have done on a bigger market team. Yeah, that's a good point. And only time will tell. I feel like after this loss kind of dies down and Rodgers goes back to California, chills out for a little bit, it might make the decision to just go back to Green Bay. And Rodgers is kind of a diva, so he's probably just stirring the pot a little bit after that loss. But overall, as much as it pains me to say it, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback I've ever seen and of all time. And it's really unquestionable at this point. And even Bruce Arians was... You know, basically like, yeah, without Tom Brady, there's no way I could have brought this team to the Super Bowl. If you listen to him in his postgame conference, he just praised Tom Brady. It's like, yeah, I basically let Tom run the offense, basically let Tom do whatever he wants. Guy's a hell of a player. Yeah, I mean, hats off. Bruce Arians said he would never coach again after he left Arizona a few years ago, but I bet he's glad he did now. Yep. So, Zach, what were your thoughts about the Chiefs, Tomahawk chomping and stomping the Bills 38-24? There was like 9,600 fans at this game, so it was cool to see the little playoff atmosphere. Arrowhead was rocking. What'd you think? Buffalo had a fantastic year. Sean McDermott, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, those guys, they were they were tremendous. I mean, what did they go, 13-3 and three this year? They beat Baltimore and beat Indianapolis in the playoffs. But let's just be real. When Patrick Mahomes is on that field with Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, It's just on another level. I was talking to my good friend about this, and it's kind of like Peyton Manning in his prime or what I would think of as Michael Jordan in his prime. It's just every time you watch them come down the court or the field and they have the ball, you expect them to score. And if they don't, something's wrong. They're going to score every time. And, you know, let's just be real. The Bills would have had to play a perfect game to beat them the other day. And they didn't have their A game. They didn't play a terrible game, that is. But the Chiefs just were not going to be denied. The offense is unstoppable. As I said, Hill and Kelsey were both over 100 yards. Mahomes was perfect. You just Sometimes you just got to tip your hat to greatness. And that Kansas City offense is one of the greatest offenses of all time, bar none. I think we kind of 
give some credit to Eric Bieniemy with this offense. I think with Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey and and some of these guys, if you take Patrick Mahomes out and put Chad Henney in or put somebody else in with that good system with all those weapons, you could still have a 10 and 16, maybe an 11 to 5 team. That would kind of be like when Matt Castle took over for the Patriots and they won 10 games. Yeah, no doubt. They would still have a really good team if Chad Henney was in there. But with Patrick Mahomes in there, they're just on another level. Yep. You said it perfectly. Buffalo had to play an absolutely perfect game to beat the Chiefs at Arrowhead. They were pretty competitive in the first half. They kept it close enough. I know people keep talking about the decision to go for the field goal at the end of the half. Makes sense at that point in the game. His other McDermott's other field goal call later on was a little bit more questionable, but I do think you kind of need to take the points, especially with Mahomes getting the ball back there. So I didn't think that was a terrible move by McDermott, but at the end of the day, the Bills just weren't as experienced. They've never been in this moment before. And when you're facing off against a juggernaut like the Chiefs, you better have your A game. And if you, know, you can't if you can't force turnovers against the Chiefs, there's zero chance you're gonna be able to beat them. And that's I really heard, what it down to. Yeah. I heard some people saying it was Josh Allen's fault. He was the reason they lost. Josh Allen still threw for two hundred and eighty five yards and had two touchdowns in the air and he ran for eighty eight yards. The dude had a he had one interception and that was at the end of the game when he was having to force some stuff. Josh Allen is still a fantastic quarterback and has a bright future, but you just got to tip your hat to greatness. Absolutely. Yeah, the Bills had a great season. They're going to be a prolific force in the AFC for years to come. They just weren't ready for this matchup. And the Chiefs are at an elite level right now. And this Super Bowl 55 matchup is going to be incredible. You have the best quarterback in the current NFL. People would say Patrick Mahomes already won an MVP who's on a historic three-year stretch facing off against the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, who's won six Super Bowls, and if he wins another Super Bowl, he'll have more rings than any NFL franchise by himself as an individual. That's just absurd to think about. So this is you know, a battle of two great quarterbacks, and it's can Mahomes overtake Brady and take that next leap? Is he going to be the heir to Tom Brady in the NFL? Or is Brady still that much better and is Brady still the guy that no one will ever be able to live up to if he wins the Super Bowl and takes down Mahomes that's kind of the big storylines there this is storybook Brady could win his seventh Super Bowl and he's probably not going to retire either way but theoretically he could win the Super Bowl and retire and walk off in the sunset or Patrick Mahomes could win and it could be almost the passing of the torch from one goat to possibly the air. I mean, this is LeBron versus Jordan in present day. I mean, this is this is wild. One other thing I'll say is that you touched on it there. Brady would have seven Super Bowls and Mahomes would have something to live up to. Mahomes could win three Super Bowls and go down as top three quarterback of all time. Three. And would be legendary more than he already is. And he still wouldn't would not have half of what Brady has. I mean, set Six Super Bowls. I think people write that off. They just look at it and they're kind of used to it and take it for granted. I don't think people realize what an achievement that is. I've gone on record saying I'm not a Brady fan. I love me some Drew Bledsoe back in the day, but let's be real here. I mean, you look at the quarterbacks. First of all, you look at the quarterbacks that never won one. Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, those guys. Look at the quarterbacks that only won one. Brett Favre. You look at the quarterbacks that won two. Peyton Manning, Eli. Ben Roethlisberger, whatever. 
And then you look at the ones that have, you know, Steve Young has a lot more Super Bowl rings, but only won one. Phil Simms is the same way. He's got two rings, but only won one as a starter. That group of four with Montana and Bradshaw is just crazy. But Elway's got two. It's just six is just so far above everything. To me, that is like Bill Russell winning as many championships as he did with the Celtics. It is just so far above everybody else, it's almost taken for granted the gap in between. And and I think that, you know, when we're talking about our grandkids here, we'll be like, you know what? That Brady guy who's in all those record books, I got to see him play. I got to watch him play against Peyton Manning, against, you know, even Brett Favre, against all these big rivals. And, and then you might also say, hey, I remember when he played Patrick Mahomes too. Absolutely. So we don't want to dive too far into the Super Bowl preview because next week we're going to break that game down in detail. But we did want to run through the Pro Bowl roster. Zach, who made it to this year's All-Star game. Hey now, you're an All-Star. Get your game on. Go play. All right, so uh, we're not going to go in-depth and read out every position, although these guys do uh, hold their tremendous honor. We're just going to read out the starters. So, Uh, Because Patrick Mahomes is in the Super Bowl, Josh Allen's going to be the starting quarterback for the AFC. Running back is going to be Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb. Tyreek Hill is going to be in the Super Bowl as well. So Stephon Diggs and Keenan Allen and A.J. Brown are going to be catching the balls on the uh, AFC side. Tidy end, Travis Kelsey is also in the Super Bowl. You know, it's crazy. All these Chief players are on the Pro Bowl team, and they're also playing in the Super Bowl. Tight end for the AFC is going to be Darren Waller from the Raiders. Laramie Tunzel is going to be the tackle. Also with Orlando Brown because Eric Fisher is in the Super Bowl for the Chiefs as well. Quentin Nelson, Joel Bettino, and probably the best center in the league, Marquise Pouncey for the Steelers is going to be uh, <laughs> going to be snapping the ball. You got anything to say about that offense, especially Pouncey back there? Well, hopefully he doesn't throw it into the end zone on the first snap of the game. If he does that, it'll be a success for the AFC. No, I think the Pro Bowl got it right this year. I can't really think of anyone that kind of got snubbed. Those are the deserving players. So it's cool to see Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs, that connection in the Pro Bowl. I'm sure they'll light it up. Yeah. On defense, the AFC's got Miles Garrett and Joey Bosa. Frank Clark and Chris Jones of the Chiefs are both in the Super Bowl, so they will not be participating. Cameron Howard of the Steelers. Defensive tackle is also going to play. T.J. Watt of the Steelers. Bradley Chubb of the Broncos are the outside linebackers. Darius Leonard is going to be the inside linebacker starting for the AFC. Xavier Howard and Tredavious White on the corners. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick from the Steelers. And Tyron Matthew uh, would have been starting strong safety, but he is obviously not going to play. So uh, Justin Simmons from the Broncos is going to be the other strong safety. Dalton, i got to say, Mike Hilton not making it's a shame. thought he had an incredible year. What do you think? I agree. There was a lot of other Steelers that made it, so that kind of made me happy. But you're right. I've been preaching on the Mike Hilton train all year. You heard me talk about it extensively. He, to me, is the most underrated cornerback in the NFL. And you can call me biased, but if you actually go back and watch the tape, in terms of his ability to rush the passer, play coverage, force interceptions. The guy is just an elite cornerback all around and is one of the most important pieces to the Steelers' defense. You know, as I look over this uh, NFC roster, it's almost kind of like David and Goliath because only one Buccaneers player made the Pro Bowl that would have played. And what did I say? I said one, two, three, four, five Chiefs players made it. So a lot of talent there on Kansas City, but we knew that. 
for the NFC roster, uh, we'll see if Aaron Rodgers plays, but he's denoted as the starter from the Packers. We've got Dalvin Cook from the Vikings running back. Devontae Adams and uh, DeAndre Hopkins, Cardinals. Also, DK Metcalf catching passes back there as well. Pretty cool to see two old Miss guys making the Pro Bowl there. TJ Hawkinson of the Lions uh, playing tight end. David Bakari tore his ACL, so he will not be participating, unfortunately. So that's going to leave Trent Williams and Teron Arstead of the 49ers and the Saints at tackle. Brandon Sheriff and Elton Jenkins of Washington and the Packers at guard. And uh, rounding out the NFC roster on offense is going to be Jason Kelsey from the Eagles, Travis's brother. So a lot of talent there. Any, you think they missed out on anybody in the NFC? On offense, I think they got it right. I still think Terry McLaurin should have made it. He's an underrated wide receiver out of the NFC. You know, Justin Jefferson's a reserve on the Pro Bowl. I was kind of surprised to see they left out McLaurin. Also uh, left out Tyler Lockett, which is a pretty big part of the Seahawks' success. But, you know, I guess they didn't want to put both Seahawks receivers in there. Moving over to the defensive side of the ball, got Cameron Jordan from the Saints and Brandon Ingram for the Eagles on the defensive ends. Chase Young is the reserve back there. You got Aaron Donald and Fletcher Cox from the Rams and the Eagles at defensive tackle. Khalil Mack, Zedekarius Smith. And outside linebacker, you got Khalil Mack and Zedarius Smith from the Bears and the Packers because Jason Pierre-Paul will be playing in the Super Bowl. Inside linebacker, you got Bobby Wagner from the Seahawks. Cornerbacks, you got uh, Jarrier Alexander and Jalen Ramsey of the Packers and the Rams. Hard to argue that. Free safety, you got Quandre Diggs from the Seahawks. Strong safety, you got Buda Baker from the Cardinals. And probably the best name in pro football for the kicker for the NFC, you got Young Hoku. <laughs> but uh, they had a great year. A lot of talent there. Um, again, kind of surprised we didn't see more of the Buccaneers on the NFC side. You know, they wouldn't have played, but just to even been named to the Pro Bowl would have been big. Yeah. So, no no Shaq it. Barrett. That's kind of crazy. No, that guy, no that guy Shaq Barrett. Happen in the playoffs a couple things on this sec why is chase young not starting he's a reserve that's ridiculous chase young should be starting and also no jamal adams i don't know the nfc roster is screwed up i'll say that the afc got it right the nfc botched it here i will say uh just looking at the roster so jamal adams did make it he's just a reserve he isn't he's not starting which is kind of wild you would think that he would be starting highest paid safety in the league also chase young Cameron Jordan is very good. Brandon Graham, I think I might have taken Chase Young over him, but that's just me. But again, they both made the Pro Bowl. They're all going to get checked, so whoopee. <laughs> How many so, South Carolinas were on that list? You know, I'd have to look and see at the reserve. I don't see any starters this year, but South Carolina will be back. You know, usually you got Melvin Ingram, Jadavion Clowney's made the list a couple of times. Jonathan Joseph back in the day when he was elite for the Texans. So the time's coming. We do have Ryan Suckup, though, in the Super Bowl. So You do. Let's be honest. Have you ever watched the Pro Bowl, Dalton? I just I can't get into it. I mean, when the guys won't hit and won't tackle, and I understand that there's not a need to. It's just a fun thing, which is fine. But uh, I'm just uh, I'm not into it either. Yeah. So let's pass it over to some NHL coverage. I want to start out by saying, puck me. Jake Voracek called a Philly beat writer, Mike Silski, a weasel. Ingenious name calling, if you ask me, but the whole interaction here went like this. Silski asked Voracek a question about the Flyers' condensed schedule amid COVID-19. Voracek responded with, it doesn't matter what I say, Mike. You're going to write fucking shit every time. 
I wasn't even going to answer your question because you are such a weasel. It's not even funny. <laughs> so clearly the two have some animosity towards each other, but the fact that he just publicly blasted a reporter like that was to be a pretty funny hockey moment overall. The guy clearly has zero filters. I love it. I've got a lot of respect for Jacob Borchek. He's been good for a lot of years there in Philadelphia. And hey, let's be real. Some of these sports reporters ask stupid questions at terrible times. You know, this reminds me of um, probably three years ago when Dan Boyle was playing the twilight of his career in New York for the Rangers. The popular sports writer up there for the New York Post, Larry Brooks, asked him some stupid question. And um, Dan Boyle pretty much said, well, I'm not answering your question. And Larry Brooks was kind of snapping back. And then Boyle said, well, you can get the out and just threw him out of the locker room. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. So, you know, these guys, they're on the ice fighting it out, grinding, and they're maybe still in that hardcore warrior state of mind. They come back and get asked a stupid question. It doesn't always end well. So good on Jacob Vorchek for sticking up for himself there. And shame on that rider for poo-pooing. My puck, me this week, John Tortorella, coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. We all know him. I've got a ton of respect for him. Had a bit of a situation pretty much since the start of the year with Pierre-Luc Dubois. So Pierre-Luc Dubois, really good player. Spent his, uh, you know, all of his career there in Columbus playing for Torts. And Luc Dubois... Want it out. So what do you do when you demand a trade? You just kind of lackadaisically start going through the motions on the ice and, oh, I'm not going to go forecheck and, oh, I don't want to get hit because I might get hurt. Okay. So what does John Tortorella do? Okay. You want to do that? You can sit your ass up there in the bleachers for all I care. He benches Pierre-Luc Dubois. So my issue with this whole situation is, is you've got your best player on the ice. Now you've benched him. And as much respect as I have for Tortorella, this is a short season, and you need every point you can get in this season. And let's be honest, Columbus is not just a team with immense depth and talent. You're going to need to win some that you shouldn't win. And how do you do that? Your best players play. I don't really agree with him benching him. It's fine now. They've actually just recently traded him. They got Patrick Line A from the Winnipeg Jets for him, so kind of replaced him. Hopefully Line A will play. I know he was disgruntled in Winnipeg there for a while, but... Let's be real here. Torts, he's a hard ass, but he's also got the third most wins in the last 10 years in the NHL. The dude knows what he's doing. He's a great coach. But he's a, he's of that old school Mike Babcock generation like we talked about. He is going to chew your ass. And you're going to play hard. You're going to block shots. And you're going to play down and dirty. And Pierre-Luc Dubois just didn't want to do it. So you hate to see a situation kind of transfold the way it did. But it's rectified now. But gosh, it looked nasty in Columbus there for a few minutes. Yeah. The interesting thing with that whole trade is when Pierre-Luc Dubois was asked about interactions with Tortorella, he actually spoke in a way that he admired him. You know, he called him Torts and had nothing but great things to say. So I don't know whether or not this is on Tortorella, why Dubois wants out, and maybe he's just doing a good job of faking it. But I'm still trying to understand their relationship altogether because when Dubois talks about him, you know, he has nothing but great things to say for Tortorella. It's an interesting yeah. scenario overall. And the deal, we can talk about that a lot because it's kind of a gangbuster deal. It's more of a NBA type of deal where it's superstar for superstar. So it was pretty cool to see in the NHL overall, and I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, and I know a lot of the old timers are going to be like, no, you've got to show your players who's boss. And I understand that. And technically, I agree with them. But with the season so short and so condensed, you don't have time for teaching life lessons. You've got to win. You've got to win now. It's rectified, so it doesn't matter now, but that's just kind of wild. You just quit on your – the player quits on his team. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how he does in Winnipeg. 
and whether or not Wine can actually rejuvenate his career under Tortorella. You know, I wonder, because there's obviously no travel between American teams and, and Canadian teams because they're not even playing this year, right? With the Great White North Division literally playing all themselves in Canada. So I wonder uh, what kind of quarantine Pierre-Luc Dubois will have to do before he gets to play in Winnipeg. Yeah, I know Line A has to quarantine for seven days. I'm not sure about really. Dubois. Yeah, but I think Canada's a little bit more strict with their COVID policies. So it might be 14 days. And if that's the case, that's two weeks. That's a lot of games he's going to miss in the regular season. And if Line A only has to sit out for seven days, that would be more favorable towards the Blue Jackets in this trade. No doubt. No doubt. Line A is just going to sit there and play Fortnite for seven <laughs> days. Yeah, he, he's loving his life right now. That's for sure. Maybe if he's smart, he would have made the switch over to Apex because Fortnite's a dead game for children. Apex is what real gamers have switched to, including myself. Well, I cannot speak to that, but I can just tell you that a few uh, two years ago when Line A was down in the dumps, there was some guy on YouTube, uh, I won't name him, but he went through and he actually found Line A's Xbox Live account and somehow, someway went in there and saw his activity and it was just like four or five hours a day, even on game days. It was tremendous. Kind of yeah, pretty, it's a pretty bad show, and, you know, especially whenever you come out and don't score goals. So yeah, yeah. On them. So let's give Zach our weekly rewind, kind of catch everyone up with what's happened over this previous week. We've seen a lot of the big teams emerge overall. We've seen Toronto be very dominant in the North Division. We've seen, and I know you probably hate this, but we've seen the Penguins rise all the way up to number two in the East after winning four straight games. You know, they lost to Philly to start out the season, two games in a row, but have bounced back quite well. And their ability to come back in games has been tremendous. They're not going to be able to replicate that going forward. So if they continue to have to play from behind, it could be an issue. But we've seen some great matchups in the North Division overall. These Canadian teams really don't like each other, so it's Vancouver's kind of bounced back a little bit. I know I was pretty critical of them since last time. And the Senators, they've really fallen off. What to you has been some of the biggest storylines that you've seen and some surprises? I mean, everyone's talking about the Wild, obviously with their new rookie coming in and them being in second in their division is absolutely crazy. Well, you know, it's hard to say. And you got to keep these for what they are uh, with the season still being so young. But I think Montreal has really been on a fire of late they jumped all the way up to tie the north division lead with toronto with 10 points i think that's been interesting minnesota playing well has been another good one they're second in the in the west with eight points and um uh, really, the other one that I thought was pretty interesting was the Devils were playing really good. They're actually tied for third in the East, so with Boston and Philly, which are two teams that we would have guessed would have been, uh, you know, up there for one and two. So pretty yeah. good. The PK Subban deal is looking pretty good, and the thing with the Devils, I, I saw this was interesting. So Mackenzie Blackwood, who I think is one of the most underrated goaltenders in the NHL, actually got hurt, and then I looked and saw who their backup was, and it was Wedgwood. So somehow they have two goaltenders who no one knows about with their last names ending in wood. <laughs> Random stat for you, but Wedgwood and Blackwood, that's who the Devils are A is working for. You heard it here first, folks. Dalton Ajo says the Jersey Devils are going to win the Stanley Cup because their two backup goalies have the name Wood. Don't, don't put words in my mouth, Zach. I'm just <laughs> doing some you know great hockey reporting. That's what I would call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
you know, we also talked what we touched it on my uh, poke me segment, but the uh, but the Jets received Pierre Luc Dubois and a 2022 third round pick in exchange for Patrick Line and center Jack Roslovic. Uh, the Jets are also going to retain a quarter of Patrick Line's salary. So, you know, I would just look and say Patrick Line is a uh, little bit of an upgrade there. And they got uh, Winnipeg to retain some salary. I, th- I think this was more of a change of scenery for both players. I think that they had kind of done well, but really just needed some fresh faces. So I think it will turn out good for both players. Yeah, I actually like Pierre-Luc Dubois. I think he's a very underrated number one center. Line A, if he can get his head right, has all the talent in the world. So this is... As I was talking about earlier, this is more of an NBA-type deal where you see a superstar player traded for a superstar. And another interesting thing that I was reading up on, the 2022 third-round draft pick is actually more valuable than this year's draft draft pick just from the talent that's coming up. So overall, I don't know who necessarily wins this trade. Only time will tell. It's hard in hockey to give these knee-jerk reactions because we saw – what happened with the Shea Weber trade in Montreal. You know, people were saying, oh, Nashville definitely won that trade overall, obtaining P.K. Subban. But now that's kind of shifted over time. And I would argue that Montreal actually won that trade because Subban's not even on the Predators anymore. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. And again, like you said, I think that Pierre-Luc Dubois is going to be a fine center up there. Going to have a nice 1A, 1B with Brian Little for the uh, number one center slot there in, in Winnipeg. And we know they got talent on the on the exterior wings with Shy Filet and, um, and Wheels over there, Blake Wheeler. So a lot of talent in Winnipeg. Yeah. What do you think about the Blues so far, Zach? Are you panicking on them? I know they lost last night 6-3 to the Kings. It seems like they're very hit or miss, and we've seen a couple of teams in that division. You know, even the Avalanche falter going 3-3, three and three, so... That division's been a little bit more unpredictable than I thought, and a lot of the elite teams have kind of failed to really get some traction. Yeah, it's early. I, I agree. I, that's all I'll say is it's early, um, and Bennington did not play last night. Uh, actually, Huso played, uh, the backup goalie, Valet Huso, for the Blues. But to me, it's the goaltending for the Blues. They've got good scoring on the wings, and, you know, Tord Krug is kind of getting started on the back end back there. But I just think it all going to fall down to goaltending because the Blues have plenty of offensive power. But uh, letting a team that is in the midst of a rebuild like the Kings beating you 6-3 to three is not really the best of look. It was getting rid of Jake Allen a mistake. I clearly think it was. Look at the success that he's having in Montreal right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still think that you have to – Put your eggs in the Jordan Bennington basket after what he did. Obviously, he has not been able to replicate that success. But, you know, you cannot have a 1A, 1B goaltender in the NHL and pay them that much money. I just think it's it takes too much money. I mean, it's the reason why Mark Andre Fleury left Pittsburgh to go to Vegas. I mean, it's just a lot of money just to tie into somebody who's going to only play 30 games a year. Yeah, that's a good point. The 1A, 1B system really doesn't work anymore. Now, if you've got two guys making four million dollars back there, that's you can do that. But if you've got you've got your guy, for instance, Henrik Lundqvist made eight point five million dollars forever in New York. If you've got eight million dollars tied up in one goalie, and you have only got one, you know, a million dollar backup back there, 
it's not meant to be that, right? It, you're going to have a number one. But if you've got two guys who can kind of fill in the roles interchangeably, then sure, that's fine. But but once you get guys making that $5 million, man, it's hard to balance that out because you do not want to put a quarter of your team salary cap into two goalies. Yeah. Well, you could try the Islanders method. They always run 1A, 1B, and it seems to work for them. But yeah. you know, it's yeah. kind of a dying thing in the NHL. You're right. So, Zach, are you sold on my Kings will make the playoffs pick yet? I'm not. I, you know, they obviously, like we just said, they beat the Blues. But, man, that division's so talented out there with Vegas. And I still think the Blues are going to be tough. But Quick's playing better. He is. I just don't quite think they've got enough talent. So, let's give a brief standings update. That way we can keep you guys inundated with where everything's at right now. What surprised me a little bit is watching Philly kind of fall from the top of the division in the East all the way down. But Zach, what do we got for a standings update this week? Yeah, so over there in the East, we've got Washington leading the division with nine points. The Pittsburgh Penguins in second with eight points. And then New Jersey, Boston, and Philadelphia tied for third at seventh. Uh, the New York Islanders with six, the Buffalo Sabres with five, and the New York Rangers at three. Uh, over in the Central, we've got Tampa Bay, who is three and one, only played four games, has six points. Columbus has six points as well. They played six games. Chicago actually in the third spot with five points, which is kind of interesting. Dallas has only played two games. They're two and zero. Oh, they've got four points. So have the Panthers, two and zero as well, tied with four. Carolina, Nashville, and Detroit all round out with four. So five teams there tied at four points in the Central. Up to the Great White North, Montreal and Toronto are tied at ten for the lead, ten points. Winnipeg in there at third at with eight points. Edmonton and Vancouver are fourth and fifth with sixth. Calgary with five, and Ottawa really struggling out there. Played six games, only got three points so far. Pretty tough. Over in the West, Vegas 5-1, and one, got 10 points. The Minnesota Wild had eight points. St. Louis has got seven. Colorado kind of sputtering a little bit. Three and three out of the gate, got six points. Tied with the Kings, who has six points as well. Obviously, we just talked about the Kings whooping down the Blues the other night. Also, with six points, you've got the Anaheim Ducks and the San Jose Sharks. And out there in eight in the West, you've got the Arizona Coyotes. And at five points. So everything's still pretty tight. Again, we've only played like six games for most teams. So everything's still in reach, but you can't give up any ground. Yeah. So it was interesting to see Nashville kind of fall all the way to the bottom of their division. Zach, do you think it's time to move on from UC Soros? They were dead set that he was going to be the next heir and, and, you know, replace Pecorine. But Soros has struggled early in this year. And that's been one of the largest reasons why the Predators have struggled so much. Yeah, it doesn't look good. They're two and three, and they've got a goal differential of minus five. So not good, giving up a lot of goals, not scoring enough. Maybe so. I still think it's just a little early to press that panic button. Again, they've only played five games. Let's get to about 10 or 12, and then we really will have a good picture. But I think you're I think you're on to something. Yeah, and the Stars, I know we've only seen them play two games. We were kind of wondering how they would bounce back from that Stanley Cup run, but they look tremendous, and honestly – if I did power rankings right now, they would probably be in my top five just with how they've come out of the gate. Anton Kadobin looks elite again. The guy seemingly gets younger every year, and they're clicking on all cylinders right now. When you play two games and you've got a plus eight goal differential, that means you've won by four both games, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. 
we know the star power with Tyler Sagan and, and Jamie Benn back there, and they've got some power. Miro Heskinen back there on the defense is a good young defenseman, so they've got a lot of talent. For sure. Ottawa's really fallen off the table. They were kind of fool's gold at first. That's all come out and win a game over the Maple Leafs, and I was like, okay, maybe Murray can help them be serviceable, but now we've really seen them get stomped. They just got swept by Vancouver, so... They're really showing that they're they're far behind every other team in the North right now. They're three years from becoming a possible contender to have any chance of contending. It's just there wasn't a lot of talent. They were still kind of get shed of bad contracts, this and that. They did have the third and fifth overall pick this year. Um, chose some good guys there, but it, it's yeah. going to be a while for Ottawa. Their German pick, Tom Stutzel, he looks pretty good overall. Yeah. I think yeah. he's showing a lot of promise. So yeah. Right spots. It's just a shame that Matt Murray, who left Pittsburgh because his confidence was shaken and he was not able to play to the level that he had played, it's a shame that he had to go to a team like that because, let's be real, you could have Patrick Watt back there and that team wouldn't really do well. Yeah, and I'm still, as our listeners probably know, pissed about the Matt Murray deal, so I wish him nothing but success. I hope that he can rebound and really help himself out up there, but if you don't have a defense in front of you, you're going to... A lot of the blame is going to go on you, and it's really not going to be the goaltender's fault in that situation. That's right. That's right. Another, another team to me, Zach, that seems to be underperforming, and I really just can't figure out who they actually are, is the Sharks. Eric Carlson, he doesn't look like his usual self. Maybe he's starting to fall off the cliff a little bit. Brett Burns still looks okay. He scored a incredible goal last night, but now they have issues in net, especially with Martin Jones being back there, and they traded Aaron Dell, so... What's your synopsis overall with the Sharks, and what do you think about them? You know, they did beat the Wild last night, or excuse me, on on Sunday. So that's a step in the right direction. Evander Kane playing with a lot on his plate right now with him filing for bankruptcy, kind of wild there. They've still got a lot of talent, but I think they are kind of getting older. I think Father Tommy is kind of creeping up in there. Their window may have closed, and playing with Vegas and St. Louis and – these other big teams is not really going to help them much. I I don't know that the Sharks are going to make the playoffs this year. Yeah. Do you think that the Minnesota Wild success is sustainable, or are we just seeing fool's gold? Are they going to just disappoint everyone later on? Personally, I don't. I don't think they're going to be able to sustain it. I think we talked a little bit about last week. Curly Kaprasov, this young rookie for the Wild, is playing very well, really gelling with Zach Peruse in that front line, but... I just don't think they're going to be able to hold it up. I mean, you look at these guys and gave up 36 shots, which is not a recipe for success. And Kakinen back there in net, I just don't know if he's going to be able to hold it together. I, I, if I was a betting man, I'd say that they're kind of windows closed. Yeah, I agree. It's crazy that they're off to the start that they are. And in a 56-game season, it is important. And I can't speak to that enough. But I don't think they have the depth to maintain it. Yeah. As we sit right now on January 26th, Anze Kopitar of the Kings, Bo Horvat of Vancouver, Mitch Marner of the Maple Leafs, and Connor McDavid of Edmonton are all tied at 10 points for the league lead. Tyler Toffoli of Montreal, Bo Horvat again from Vancouver, Travis Konecki and Mikko Rantanen all have five goals for the league lead, and Anze Kopitar leads the league in helpers with nine assists. So, got a little bit of talent spread. I know last week we had... Uh, Martyr and Tavares were both in there, so kind of good to see a little more diversity there. Got some good players in there. Be interesting to watch, see who can hold it up, who can. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Goals are finicky, man. They can, they, you, you can score four in one night and six in a week, and then won't score again for twenty games. So, 
Yeah, it's like Jack Eichel who started the season. He has seven assists but zero goals. You have to assume the goals are going to come, but you know, only having seven assists is pretty crazy. Well, I can regret to inform you that he broke that streak tonight and has one goal against the Rangers, so of course. <laughs> As we talk about it. That's right. Dalton, while we're here talking about some players, let's talk about some spotlights. What you got for players spotlight last week? First guy I want to talk about is Mitch Marner. I know you just mentioned him earlier, but he has 10 points overall, and he's really off to the best start of his career. Doesn't get enough love in Toronto, so he's been a huge force for them on offense. Yeah, you know, Marner gets kind of pushed to the back burner there with Tavares and uh, Austin Matthews, but he's a really good player. Obviously, he gets paid a lot of money there in Toronto, and he needs to produce, and he has been producing, so good on him. Marner's a hell of a good player. My uh, best friend's dad, who's a big Maple Leafs fan, loves him some Mitch Marner. So my first player spotlight of the week, staying in the Great White North, I've got Tyler Toffoli. He had a hell of a week last week with five goals and eight points in four games. Crushed it. He was a big reason that they put up a touchdown on Vancouver on the 21st and uh, fully crushed it last week. He's part of that silent forward group that you talked about that you've got faith in for Montreal having success that I don't personally have a lot of faith in. But, man, it's hard to argue with those results. Yeah. My next player spotlight is John Gibson. I know we've been praising him a lot on this podcast, but he is the only reason the Ducks have been somewhat relevant thus far this season. And he has been on a ridiculous run to start the year. He has a 938 save percentage right now. And the Ducks really don't have a great defense. They're giving up a ton of shots, and he's just standing on his head every single night. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Gibson is is the only thing keeping the Ducks respectable over there. Uh, moving on for my second player spotlight, I got Pavs. I've got Joe Pavelski of Dallas. First two games back for the Stars this year, he's got three goals and four assists. So, Seven points in two games, um, almost four points a game, give or take. Pretty darn good. So give me Pavs. That's a pretty darn good week there. Yeah. And my last player spotlight is Bo Horvath, Vancouver's captain. The guy's been on an absolute heater. Vancouver got off to a really rough start. And I know, Zach, you had high expectations for Vancouver. I personally didn't, but he's kind of been the reason why they've been able to turn the corner lately. He has five goals and five assists. For 10 points, he's tied for the league lead right now. And he really has elevated his game when when Vancouver needed him the most. They were off to a rough start, but his elevated play has really helped them, you know, get gelling again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, My last player spotlight, I I got Mark Chauvelet from the Winnipeg Jets. Big reason why the Jets are playing well. He's got eight points in four games on that big line with Blake Wheeler and those guys. So, you expect them to put a lot of points on the board, and that's what they're doing. Eight points in four games is pretty darn good. Even my math can work that out. That's two points a game. That's Hall of Fame worthy. That's, yeah, that would be all-time great level. That'd be even better than Gretzky. So, Zach, let's end our hockey segment with some of the best upcoming matchups. So, starting out in the East, the Penguins are playing Boston. This is going to be a great series. This is really going to help, I think, decide – where the Penguins are at and where the Bruins are at overall. And then this will also tell us a lot about the Flyers, too, because the Flyers swept Pittsburgh but got dominated by Boston. So I think this helps answer a lot of questions in the East. But overall, I'm very intrigued. I am worried about this matchup for the Penguins because historically, the bad boy Bruins have dominated the Penguins. Their physical play really outmatches the Penguins' finesse style. So 
this is a troublesome matchup for me, and I would be surprised if the Penguins can actually pull out some wins here. That's right, as Don Cherry used to say, the big Boston Bruins are going to whoop up on the Pittsburgh Penguins. By the way, spell Penguins for me. P-E-N-G-U-I-N-S. That's correct. That is the official correct spelling of it. But however, your pronunciation, I believe you're saying P-A-N-G, Penguins. Penguins, yeah, that's just because I'm from the South. (laughs) (laughs) We got some Southern dialects, so we're going to make hockey coverage more interesting. You don't hear about about Southerners talking about hockey, so clever roast. You you ain't got penguins over in South Carolina, boy. We we got those penguins, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, should be a really good game with Boston and Pittsburgh. My game's to watch this week. I'm going to go on the other side of the country. I'm going to go Vegas and St. Louis. They're going to play tonight on the 26th and again on the 28th. That's going to be a pretty impactful series there for the West. And also, Nashville and Tampa are going to have a big game on Saturday as well. Tampa will have a chance to stretch out their lead there in the central and just bury Nashville or Nashville can have a chance to get some points back on the league leaders. So it should be good. You get that yeah. nasty gritty playoff teams. It'll, it's always a good matchup. Yeah. Alex Petrangelo facing his former team for the first time. It can be a great storyline overall. We'll see how it performs. I'm sure he'll come out and be motivated. All of the North matchups seem to be very intriguing every single night, but I really like this Maple Leafs Flames matchup. It's going to tell me a lot about where the Flames are at overall because they've gotten off to a great start, and I'm really interested to see if it's sustainable. And Toronto seems like the class of the North, so anytime you get a chance to see a team play Toronto, you can kind of gauge where they're at in that division. I agree. I think that's very well said. And, you know, you like you said, you've got all that talent on Toronto, and, and they should be really good day in and day out. Hard to get up for every game, but uh, we'll see what they can do. This game, uh, they just played on Sunday here, the 24th. The Leafs won 3-2, so it should be a good rematch for the Flames. To me, the Calgary uh, Flames are going to go on the back of Markstrom and Riddick back there and yeah I, I just think that um the talent's there with Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Gaudreau and those guys but they're just gonna have to have a little help from the netminder back there also interesting to see Milan Lucic is playing for the Flames he always has big games it seems like against the Leafs always uses his physical force against them that should be interesting to watch so that'll be another fun tidbit to keep in mind yeah and every single game in the regular season is important We're playing a reduced season with 56 games overall. So all these games are must wins and it's made for some incredible matchups so far. And I kind of like the new division realignments. I mean, it sucks as a Penguins fan to have to play all these prolific teams in the East. Yeah, we got some good hockey this week. Should be fun. Uh, I know that with this short season, every game's going to matter. So I'll be interesting to see Colorado and San Jose play tonight as well on the 26th at the time of this recording. Both teams three and three will really kind of bury one team and kickstart the other, hopefully, because let's be honest, both teams are currently underachieving. I think we both would have picked that they would have been above 500 even this early in the season with the Avalanche being Stanley Cup contenders out there in the West. But we'll see. Should be fun. Should be fun. So got to love it. I love it. I, Dalton, I can sit there and look at the NHL app, and if I see a game is in overtime, I don't care who it is. It could be the Joe Blob who hoes or whatever. I can watch a three-on-three overtime. It is so fast. It is so much fun. And when your team's not in it, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Now, it gives you way too much adrenaline and stress when your team is in it, but 
them switch the NHL switching over to three on three playoffs was the best thing that they have decided to do for a while. I agree. I agree. One hundred percent. You guys enjoy the show and you're enjoying the hockey content and you're tired of listening to the oversaturated sports media market that fails to cover one of the greatest sports we have out there. It really makes me sick. You don't see ESPN. You don't see half of these media companies giving hockey the respect that it deserves. And here at Calling My Shots, we're going to change that. We're two guys. I'm from South Carolina. Zach's from Mississippi. We're still out here covering hockey because all these national pundits are failing to do it. So if you enjoy the show, tweet at us, at Caller Shots. That's our handle. And you no longer have to look at an ugly-ass Cleveland Browns logo because the Patreon page is back to normal and everything feels right in the world. But if you do want to support our show and see it grow, the link is patreon.com slash calling my shots. That's right. Uh, I say it on here every week, but I'll say it again. Send us a message. Send us a tweet. Send us a carry pigeon. Whatever you got to do, reach out to us. We want to want to hear from you. We want to hear what topics you want to be discussed. If you got any questions or anything, we'd love to talk to you. Dalton and I are going to be moving into some more baseball coming up. Hopefully dive into some college baseball as well as the MLB, which will be fun, with, especially with football kind of closing down and rounding up. So should be fun. So jump on the ride. Ride with us. Yeah, the other thing is, the offseason so far, Major League Baseball has been crazy. There's been so many moves, and the thing that really pisses me off so far is Jameson Tyon, we can get into this, traded to the Yankees, so now I have to watch both Garrett Cole and Tyon in that ugly-ass black-and-white pinstripe. So we'll get into some more baseball coverage, but I do like Zach's idea of covering college baseball because you in sports media have failed to do it. So Zach and I here on Calling My Shots, are going to bring it to you. Yeah, and just the last tidbit, you can hate the Yankees all you want, and I understand they have bought a lot of championships, but I just don't think you can hate the pinstripes. I mean, they are iconic. They're kind of like the Indian on the front of the Blackhawks jersey. They are also kind of like the powder blue royal uniforms. They're just iconic. I don't think you can hate on the pinstripes and be considered a baseball fan. Well, I can hate on the franchise, but you do bring up the I'm just, let me be pissed off right now, Zach. Let me go on my my tangent about the Yankees. I hear you. All right, guys. Y'all have a good weekend. We'll catch you next time. This has been Calling My Shots.